It's that time again, everybody. It's welcome back to our weekly podcast, Range Anxiety. I'm your host, Martin Donnan, and we put every week at this stage 30 years of automotive experience into 30 minutes for your listening pleasure. Now, so far, we've recorded three episodes. They've been really well supported, and we're getting some great feedback from all around the world. The East Coast of America could probably lift their socks a little bit and uh, listen a bit more, but West Coast is doing fine. Um, Plenty of listeners in Cali all the way up to uh, Portland, so I'm pretty happy with that. Like I said last time, we're getting into Europe now. We've got Ireland, we've got the UK, and we're starting to head into continental Europe itself. So yeah, great times, great listeners, great feedback. Thank you all very much for your support. Remember, if you do have any suggestions, please email them. We need your feedback. Email them to dtech, D-T-E-C-H, at senet.com.au and let me know what you think. And yes, no, actually more to the fact, no one's told me to shut up yet. Probably the most famous bit of feedback that I've had is from someone that uh, that has been listening and I heard through a proxy. We refer to him as the King of Denmark. No, no relation to the royal family, but I know you're listening, King. Please enjoy. This is about me. It's not about you. And we're going to get into this week's show right now, aptly titled Range Anxiety, Episode 4, Hot Chips. Now, those of you uh, that are car buffs, and I figure that's probably all of you, would already know what a hot chip for a car is. These days, it's something that comes with a loom and you plug it in and it's an interceptor, whether it's a unichip or something cool like that or something completely different. But back in the day, back in the early 90s when this all started, pretty much all cars actually had a plug-in chip, an integrated circuit, an EEPROM, uh, erasable, electronically erasable, programmable, read-only memory, um, that was inserted in the ECU itself. Sometimes it had a socket, you can unplug it. Other times you had to desolder it and solder it back in with a socket or whatever. Um, Back in those days, there were a couple of players in Australia that were big in the chip scene. Um, They were mainly importing stuff. They were importing chips from, there was one company which I I had a look at and got involved with a little bit originally called uh, Brody Britain Racing, BBR, and they had the BBR Star Chip, and they were out of the UK, London, I do believe, and uh, they had some cool stuff. If you happen to have a Ford Sierra or something European or a Peugeot of some description or a Citroen, uh, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of application for that product here. It was a good product, and it seemed to work, kind of. Um, and there was also uh, another great... Um, UK-based company started by a guy called Peter Wales, I think it's long since retired, which was Superchips, uh, which he then expanded to the US and, and did some really great stuff. Um, when I digress a little bit here, but when we first got into tuning Fords with the EEC4, we used the Superchips EEC4 adapter and then and reader unit and then kind of write it or modified our own maps to put in them. So yeah, Superchips are a good company and uh, I kind of believe they still might be around today and some guys, not totally sure. Well, anyway, you all know the story of 
how I uh, stuffed up my father's brand new Ducati uh, 851 superbike at the time. Um, and it took a mate of mine who was an electronics engineer to fix up the ECU and, and we founded this great business known as Fueltronics back in the day. Um, we were, well, I, no, actually the both of us were, were working in a, a computer software company and we were doing a lot of reprogramming of uh, point of sale cash registers. It was when a point of sale terminal actually was a cash register with a circuit board in it that talked back to a PC. Pretty cool stuff. Um, so we were pretty familiar with how to read and write EEPROMs. So it was a natural progression that when this technology was cracked open for cars that we would dive our dirty little fingers in there as well and, and, and have a crack. We were both car buffs. Um, if you're listening to this, Yuri, they were really good times. Um, however, there were no real tools to edit ROMs and do things back then. I mean, today you can, you know, anyone off the street can go and buy professional tuning software, editing software, HP tuners, EFI Live, NizTune, all these great products that take all of the tricky bits out of it and allow you to tune a car. I believe that they also take a fair bit of the magic out of it. Those were, as I like to call them, back in the day, the wonder years where, you know, we didn't know if anything we did was going to work or how well it was going to work. We just kind of winged it a lot and got some pretty good results, some average ones too. So without a beautiful GUI, without a beautiful interface that said, this is your fuel table, this is your timing table, we use stuff like Hex Editor Neo and all of these uh, generic hex editing tools and we would look for patterns or it was my job actually we would look for patterns in the software so if I could see a data block that kind of looked like it had an x and a y reference to it and it was um, a certain shape and size you could kind of line up that shape with what stuff like a timing tap uh, a map looked like in the Bosch EFI handbook of the time and surprisingly enough, if you sat there long enough and looked through the source code in these things, you could actually, uh, you could actually identify some maps. And that, that's how we did it with the, the VN Commodore. There were other players at the time that uh, were inside of the factory that had actual access and reference to the source code. And yeah, they were able to, to kick our butts uh, pretty, <laughs> pretty well. You know, we're, we're identifying maps and changing timing by a couple of degrees. They can do things like rev limiters and check some blocks and all of these, all of these, you know, super important things that, that we couldn't do. And probably one of my first commercial jobs was to tune a fairly new at the time. It was probably three years old. It was a VL Walkinshaw Butte car, you know, the flying picnic table as, as they came to be known. And uh, yeah, I, I got a job from this guy. He was up in the Riverland. He was a local mechanic up there. He uh, had this car, he loved it. He'd put like a, a Crane 284 in it and done some head work himself. And of course it ran like, you know, a bucket of snot because all the mapping was wrong. So he said, Martin, he rang me up. Can you do it? I've heard of you, I've heard of your company. And you know, being a kid, you know, I was probably only 21 or 22 at the time. I said, sure I can. You know, there's nothing that I'd say no to. There's nothing I couldn't do. Yeah, well, I couldn't do this. Um, we booked a dyno, uh, road and track services for those of you that are local in my area and um, gentleman there that was running the place, Gil Cameron. 
he watched me struggle with this thing on the dyno as I was like burning EPROMs and trying chips and had a CO meter up its backside. We didn't have cool stuff like um, high-speed air-fuel ratio meters back then. In fact, a trick a lot of people used was to stick their finger in the tailpipe. I mean, not all the way in, but if what was coming out of that was hot, then the engine was too lean. And if what was coming out of that was cold, then the engine was too rich. Obviously, this would only ever happen at idle. The last thing you'd want to do is hold your hand there at 5,000 plus RPM and full load. Well, anyway, after struggling to make this Veal Walkinshaw run better than stock, yeah, I didn't get too far. It didn't run that good at all. Um, Gil just was mates with a guy that, that, that did some work at Holden in Victoria and said, yeah, I've got a chip for it. Put it in. And the thing ran really nicely. So the guy from the Riverland obviously thought I was uh, um, stupid. And we didn't talk again for a couple of years. And then as it turned out later, we did uh, end up doing a lot of business together later on. And um, thank you very much for that, Tony. <laughs> there were some good times. And uh, working with uh, hanging Vortex off of, you know, VT, Vortex Superchargers, that is, from the US, off VT Commodores and AU Falcons, taking them to Summonats and entering Horsepower Heroes and all of that stuff. They were great days. Um, the real big change came um, from a company called Race Logic, which I, I believe had something to do with Superchips uh, in the UK. And what Race Logic had was a proper ROM emulator. It was expensive. It was like I don't know, 2,000 pounds back then. So we scraped together every single cent we could get our hands on and bought this RaceLogic emulator. What this would allow you to do is have all of the hex for the ECU on the screen and run the car live. It would be plugged into where the EEPROM would plug into the circuit board and it would have data pointers in there or map traces much like a modern ECU does now, an aftermarket ECU that would show you whereabouts on the table you were scooting around. So if you wanted to change an idle value, you could just let the car idle, see which bits were lit up and start changing numbers and see if it was the fuel or the, the timing with a timing light that was changing. So that was a real game changer and that allowed us to make a working product. Um, Sometimes I still get people ringing me to this day saying, oh, do you still have that emulator? I'd really like that. So I'm trying to do some old historic sort of stuff. And no, I don't. So don't ring me um, about that. I also don't have any of my old tooling to program Holden uh, V6 and V8 VN onwards Memcal units anymore. I reckon I've probably seen more Holden Memcals. That was, it was called a Memcal. It was a blue thing. It plugged into the Delco 808 ECU and it contained the EEPROM in it, some other circuitry, and in the case of a V6, a knock sensor. And these things, we did hundreds and hundreds of them. We programmed them for specific applications. Like, for example, if you bought a crane cam in Australia for a Commodore back then, there was a good chance it came with one of my crane 276 or 284 chips. There was also Genie exhaust systems. We did the Genie hyperchip. And we used to 
to, to, to match the headers and system and so on. We literally did hundreds of these things over the years and we became experts at, you know, cutting them up, chopping them up, resoldering chips into them, changing ROMs, we making adapters. We, we were really, really big on that stuff. And I just had boxes and boxes of these memcows that my customers would buy brand new from Holden. And, you know, we would have the equivalent of 50 to 100 shoe boxes full of them and rails and rails of EPROMs. I reckon we used to buy them a thousand at a time in different sizes. That stuff's just not available anymore. It's like trying to buy a vinyl record. But we had this stuff literally coming out of our ears. And I remember when we moved to the city, uh, my company, Fueltronics, if I was going through a... Uh, uh, a frustrating time trying to tune a specific car, I'd have about seven or eight of these EPROMs or 10 or maybe even 20 lined up and I'd be like programming and put them in, no, not right, program, put it in, not right, program, put it in, not right or something would fail and rather than put them back in the eraser and erase them so they could be reused, ultraviolet light when it was concentrated would erase the EPROM quite nicely, I would actually just flick them over my shoulder up onto the roof of the building. Now, I reckon today, if you were to Google Earth that building, and I'm not telling you where it is, just in case I'm right, it would look like it has 50 solar panels on the roof. They wouldn't be solar panels. They were the number of EPROMs that I just flicked up there in frustration. Yeah, probably not my finest moment, but it's a it's a pretty cool story and, and indeed quite funny. Um, it was about this time when we were starting to get a handle on... on how well we see prom technology and mapping cars worked that we started to look at a few different platforms and you know the vl commodore was there like the, the nissan engine vl and there were et turbos and the, the gdr thing was just starting so we looked inside those ecus and they actually made a lot more sense than or to me to my eyes than the american delco stuff you know they had tables big access tables you know 16 by 16 or 16 by 24 maps for fuel and timing, and it kind of all made sense. There were big raised areas in there where uh, the vehicle was in feedback control. It took me a while to work that out, whether it was knock sensors controlling timing or um, closed loop feedback control controlling timing. And they kind of, the, the numeracy of the things was a little bit weird at times, as, as was the axis labeling, but we kind of worked it out or we worked it out enough to get results. Some of the stuff that was a bit harder was uh, the European gear, uh, early Bosch Motronics, they would have four or five timing maps or four or five fuel maps, uh, depending on what the vehicle was doing, you know, what temperature it was or, you know, what mode you had it in. But a lot of their full throttle, high load stuff, which was the stuff we were doing on the dyno, was just a single line table. So they had full throttle uh, fuel, ignition and... Um, uh, sometimes in that uh, manifold runner control. Look, this is a long time ago and sometimes I get some of this wrong and there'll be people sitting back there that do know more than me about this going, ah, ha, ha, I was listening to Donna and he doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, I did at the time. A, a, a lot of it's very old now. This is just how I remember it being. And, you know, you are listening to my podcast, so that's the way it's going to be. Um, at this time when we were getting ahead with this gear, is when um, a lot of the big aftermarket players started in Australia. 
and you know, Autronic was was right up there with Motec. Um, I think they were uh, Richard and and Autronic were kind of um, related at one stage in terms of the same business. I don't know, but they were both really good products. And some of the V8 supercar field would oh, they weren't even V8 supercars back then. What am I talking about? They were Group A. Some of the field would use Autronic. Some would use Motex. Both really, really good devices. And I remember one of the really inquiring journalists uh, of the era who who will remain unmentioned you know used to take me to task on this stuff uh, he was he was uh, he knew a bit about what he was talking about too and uh, he loved his Autronics and, and he used to hang around the Autronic dealer in Adelaide a lot and he saw some good stuff and he was like you know we would really love to put your factory you know ECU on an RB30 up against an Autronic on the dyno on the engine dyno and you know you see how useless you or it really are and look, we weren't we weren't at the level where we could take on an aftermarket ECU at all. That was just folly. But you know, my how times have changed. Uh, these days, a, a current generation Nissan ECU, for example, as the VL was, is you know as good as anything aftermarket, in my opinion. Um, we went through that in episode one, and you can get some really fantastic results out of out of factory ECUs. I mean, look how many. LS the world conversions uh, with the GMLS engine use the factory ECU. Doesn't matter, twin turbo, supercharged, eight throttle body, whatever operating exists, uh, operating systems exist to do everything that you could dream of now that just didn't exist back when we were doing it. You know, if a car had an airflow meter, it was stuck with an airflow meter. There was no mathless tuning. In fact. We tried that really early day stuff at Fueltronics by, forget what it was on, I think it was a 993 Porsche. We made a little box with a little, I think they were a pick chip they were called back then, and then a little um, controller that you could write stuff for in, in pick basic. And we tried to uh, alter the airflow meter signal. We, we read it with a map sensor and tried to make the map sensor mimic the curve of a mass airflow meter or a vein, vein airflow meter they were actually, terrible thing. Um, and yeah, we kind of got pretty close back then, but you know, there wasn't a huge demand for that kind of thing. But you know, look now, every second phone call I get is, can you do this mapless? Can you do that mapless? Can my GM be mapless? Can my Mitsubishi Evo be mapless? Well, maybe, maybe not. But you know, we just didn't have access to this stuff. Something we did do, though, you know, the majority of tuners you go to these days, if they're doing anything tricky, modern, super modern um, European ECUs, will be getting their files from someone, possibly what is known as a file farm. There are these big registries, these big, um, that's not the right word, repositories that exist on the internet now where you can punch in your, 2018 Porsche, select the um, ID of, of, of the ECU, and you can download a dyno quality file and put in it, which is a lot of what's going on out there um, that's tagged as custom tuning. We like to refer to it as slave tuning because the, the units are known as slave units uh, and they're slave files or whatever. But, and again, there's, a lot of times there's nothing wrong with that, but what we did back then is came up, you know, this is before the internet was really cool and there were 
before there were forums even, or even Windows Explorer, there was stuff called BBSs where, you know, with dial-up links. And we had this thing called the Fueltronics Download System, the FDS, back then, where we had a PC sitting there. Um, our dealers, we supplied an EEPROM burner to around the country, and they could ring this thing up, and they could pick from a long list of files that we had uploaded for Commodores and Fords and whatever, Suzuki, Swift, GDIs or whatever, and they could download their own files and put them in the car and, and you know, sell them to a client. And we could see what they'd downloaded, so we would just send them a bill. That was pretty cool forward thinking back then. It, it kind of lost a bit of steam after a while as people tried to do everything themselves, but it was really a precursor to today's file farms. So, yeah, at one stage I was Farmer Donnan of the files. And... Like I said, good times, good fun, and we learnt a lot. Um, you know, we did some amazing stuff too that kind of worked all right. Like I was, I was fortunate enough to be uh, contacted by a guy called uh, Brett Middleton. A lot of Aussies listening to this would know he was Mr. Ecutech in Australia until just recently when he's moved on to do other things. Really successful company, MRT, Middleton Rally Team. But they started out with, Really cool stuff. Not Subarus that you might think, an Ecutech, but they had Daihatsus. And in Australia, there was a dirt rally series called the Daihatsu Rally Challenge. And these were kind of stock cars that, you know, had suspension and, and underguards and whatever else put on them and roll cages. And they'd get them out and they'd run them as a category in the Australian um, Rally Championship. We got the job because I knew Brett of calibrating <laughs> the ECUs, the, the Denso ECUs and these things, which was near impossible um, to make them make more power, which we kind of could and couldn't do. But one of the big problems they had was they had a rev limiter that was too low. Now, we didn't have access to that part of the code. We didn't have access to any of the code at all, really. Um, but Brett wanted the things to do another five or 600 RPM. So we came up with this rather horrific device but it worked from time to time it was a cool little circuit that soldered in inside the ecu onto the board that would as the engine rev started to rise it would skip pulses which didn't have some you know great results on timing and fueling but and could be a little bit coarse i suppose you could say from time to time but it would allow these things an extra thousand rpm and if you sort of were wearing earplugs and shut your eyes, it, that would actually do it. And, you know, this is sort of pioneering stuff that you just don't see anymore. In my opinion, and I don't care if this gets me some hate mail, today's ECU tuners have it far too easy. And because they've got it far too easy, it allows people that shouldn't be doing this kind of work to actually be doing it um, and it leads to you know have laptop will tune sort of mentality and it leads to there's so much choice now I would field probably 10 to 20 phone calls a week uh, with my role at PowerTech tuning with people ringing up just asking shopping around for the price of a tune let me tell you now there is probably no product that you could be any more inaccurate with your specification of um, uh, making a purchasing decision saying, 
How much do you cost? How much do you cost? Because all we may all use the same tuning tools, but all that is is a tool. It's like giving a mechanic a spanner, the same spanner every mechanic has it, and saying, uh, I'm going to go to the one that's cheapest to do an engine rebuild. Well, it's just a tool, and you should actually, if you are considering tuning a car one day, take my advice, ask the questions, look not just at the experience, you know, some of us are older than others, and, you know, I can't help it that I'm super old and been doing this a long time, and others haven't, but speak to them, understand what they know, uh, ask them questions and see how confidently they can answer, because tuners aren't tuners, and the line between someone starting out and having a having a go, having a crack for money on your car versus someone that is quite confident and experienced, that line is becoming more and more blurred. And because of that, we see out there in car world, car, car world, tuna land, more and more common mistakes being made that there really is no place for in 2020, 21. Um, you know, there will always be tuna wars out there and tuna wars will always be a big thing. And, you know, this is something we're going to cover in our next episode, the tuna wars. Um, they were fantastic days. You know, they started out with when internet forums were huge. You know, there were massive forums in Australia. You know, I locked horns with some of the biggest and the best players in the country and was, you know, kind of quite lucky to get away with some of the things I said at the time. Um, the tuna wars on forums were huge. A lot of people still remember me from back then. I was street tuner, um, which is pretty cool, I suppose. Um, and it, that's all kind of moved on now. It's all Facebook and all social based. And, you know, if someone calls you out, you can just hide them, block them, delete them. And and it seems a lot more people are comfortable working that way because they can actually get away with a hell of a lot more um, shoddiness than we could back then. You know, there was no way of moderating these threads and the moderators of these forums loved the spice, so they didn't want to moderate them either. So my word, if you made a big mess up, the whole of Australia knew. And you know what, that degree of accountability is kind of what's missing now. And, you know, there were people that got pinned that didn't deserve it. And there were people that didn't cop it that did deserve it. But that open forum of discussion no longer exists. Flashy photos, Insta posts, glamour, workshop hoppers is what it's all about now. And to me, that's a little bit disappointing. But... You're really going to want to strap yourself in for next week's episode, Tuna Wars, because I've got some absolutely mind-blowing stories to tell you about that. So until then, our 30 minutes is nearly up. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast, Hot Chips, not the kind you eat, and look forward to having you listen next week. Stay safe.